HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD-50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Bolte of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant. Hi there, Greenhorns. This is Severin. It is uh, Thursday once again. Time for Radio Greenhorns. Greenhorns Radio. Radio for Greenhorns by Greenhorns. All about what it is to begin in a career of agriculture. Um, meeting people who are doing that and talking about it on the radio. And today I'm very happy to be joined by Eric Herm of Ackerley West, Texas. Um, not everybody puts te- West on their Texas. Um, would you mind explaining why West Texas is different from other parts of Texas? Yeah, it's kind of like its own island out here. We're we're so far from everything. It's you know we're a geographical oddity. It's 300 miles from anything. What about rivers? You got any rivers? Oh no, I wished. Those have long dried up from who knows when. Uh, you and can you see like the old playas and stuff that. <laughs> Just all all of our water is below ground. There's okay, a few lakes sorry, here sorry. and there, we but they're pretty start scattered. With, who are you, and 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 what's going on in Ackerley? What's going on in Ackerley? 
not a whole lot these days. It's uh, it's very much a small town, farming community. Uh, you know, this part of Texas, if you're not in the oil business or in agriculture, uh, the jobs are few and far between. But uh, I grew up out here on a cotton farm and and moved back, you know, left for about 10 years and came back to the farm uh, about seven years ago. And uh, this is uh, where I've made home, you know, been here. I'm the fourth generation. My kids are the fifth generation. So we've got some roots here. And what is, um, just to give our listeners who are not necessarily um, super used to, to, to knowing about cotton, what is the... Um, what is the typical scale cotton operation in your part of Texas, and and what's the history of that industry right there? Uh, the average average farm these days in cotton is going to be around 2,000 acres, and that's uh, changed a lot since I was a kid. Uh, it may be even closer to 2,500 acres these days. We farm over 6,000 acres between my dad and I, and it's it's a big operation. It's it's a little overwhelming at times. Uh, cotton has pretty much been the main crop that's kept a lot of us in the south going in the farming world because it's such a drought-tolerant plant. Uh, it's a real, real tough plant. Uh, it's a tropical perennial, so it can survive a lot of heat, a lot of long periods of, of drought. So it's our meat and potato crop out here in West Texas, if it weren't for the cotton plant, uh, there wouldn't be much else going on because we don't irrigate on our farm at all. We're all dry land. There is quite a bit of irrigation, but that's farther north of us as the Oglala slowly drops off. But uh, cotton is, uh, you know, it's the way of the south. Say that again? Is cotton king? Cotton is king, no doubt. And all this kingful cotton that you're growing on, wow, I can't even imagine 6,000 acres being responsible for it. It would make me not be able to sleep at night. Um, I'm managing 100 acres, and that seems like a lot. Now, we're talking about this cotton that you're growing, and where does it all go? How does that happen? Do you have your own, um, what's it called, a gin? Yeah, all, there used to be a lot more gins than there are now. Um, I used to you know the statistics, but from 1990 to now, uh, we've lost close to a third of our cotton gins in this country. There's fewer and farther between. Um, our, we've got three gins within 15 miles of us, so we're pretty fortunate. Actually, four gins within 15 miles. Wow. So that means it probably is mostly cotton within 15 miles, too. Yeah, um, I would say 90% of the infrastructure in this part of the world is all geared towards cotton. You know, we kind of turned into one-trick ponies a long time ago, and the only other crop that we could really grow out here was milo, and the prices were so low on on grain crops for such an extended period of time, there's no way farmers could make economical sense out of out of growing it. Well, it's a trick that one-trick pony has a, um, has a mean kick, which is that Sometimes that one that one that one trick goes out of fashion. I just came from the Willamette Valley, which is hyper specialized in um, grass seed, and they're just having a hell of a time because the boom of grass seed, in particular, selling sod to Saudi Arabia for golf courses and selling 
seed to growers of sod for new developments was just so hot. And then when the housing market crashed and the economy went down, you know, grass is, is not really the first priority anymore. And so they they were just, everybody only had equipment for grass seed and um, are having to radically rethink their whole region and without very much money or time to make those decisions. And But you're making some decisions on your farm that have to do with diversifying and um, less chemical intensive use of the land. Could you maybe summarize a little bit of what's been going on in those last seven years? Yeah, when, uh, we've eliminated pesticides, we've eliminated GMO crops, and we've eliminated commercial fertilizers. We only use organic fertilizers for our crops. We've rotated in uh, some forage crops like maize and wheat, which has helped get a lot more organic matter in the soil. When I first moved back, the majority of our fields had 0.8% organic matter. And you really need 25 to 3% to have, you know, a healthy, healthy soil. And ideally it needs to be double that. But we're slowly building that back. Uh, working in other crops like legumes, such as black-eyed peas, which do well out here. The trick is, you know, getting getting those to somewhere where you can sell them and not get hurt on the price, you know, and do all these things. It's not going to put you out of business. Those are the challenges in our part of the world. But other crops like oats and, and uh, legumes, you know, help replenish the soil and put in organic nitrogen and phosphorus so we don't have to spend a lot of money on fertilizers. And also, you know, we're just replenishing the soil, doing what we need to put back minerals and vitamins that it needs. And can you see that? I mean, I would assume that if you're doubling the soil organic matter that you would have a lot less dust and that the soil would be more friable and that would be more drought resistant and all the things that I read about in books, but you're kind of watching that happen on your on land that you know from use. Can you describe that? Yeah, there's that no like? doubt. There's there's no comparison between the soil uh, where we've we've built it up. You know, the last few years, the plants will sustain drought longer. They're less susceptible to insects that cause damage, and um, yeah, I mean, when the wind starts kicking up, I can see my neighbor's fields. They'll blow, and ours is still intact, you know. And, and in years past, there was just no magnetic properties in that soil, no nothing to hold it, and it's night and day in the difference. Now, the magnetism of the soil, it's amazing. It brought you all the way back home. Um, what was the reasons for going back? What was it, Well, what was the reasons for leaving, and then what was the reasons for coming back? When I grew up, I just I just didn't dig farming. I I didn't like being here. I, it was boring to me. Uh, I just didn't see the point in a lot of the things that we were doing. You know, I just I personally had a real disconnect with it. And you know, I'd been doing work by the time I was old enough to to walk with a hoe in my hand. You know, to chop weeds, and I it's almost like I kind of resented it because I I never did a, allow myself to appreciate it and i think it's because you know my dad's generation the baby boomers they were forced to do a lot of labor too because their parents grew up so hard so i think a lot of it was with what i was doing and kind of feeling sorry for myself because i had to work so hard all the summers and all my friends were having fun and just the fact that i didn't i didn't feel connection to it i wanted to do other things but as i got into my 20s you know i got to do a lot of traveling on 
did other jobs, helped me sow some oats, you know, in more ways than one. And I came back, and I just thought I'd really work for my dad for a year or two. And I was pleasantly surprised in how the land just grabbed hold of me, and, and that connection that I'd kind of denied or tried to hide was was very strong. And did you come back with a family already, or did you have to import some... Um... Did you have to import the other half? <laughs> yeah, I had I had to go north of the Mason-Dixon line to get a yeah a woman. She's from Rhode Island. And, Holy uh, smokes! Yeah, so she's in constant culture shock out here. She asked me the same thing: "Where's the water?" You know, when, when she got here. But um, yeah, it's hard to adjust if you grew up on the ocean. It's hard to adjust, but love is very powerful. Like, it's um, it's nearly impossible to imagine a lot of things, but then people seem to do a lot of things. Yeah, uh, after she, so she survived is, two summers here, I knew she must stuff. have loved like, me. Oh, sorry? I said after she survived two summers in West Texas, I decided she finally really loved me. Oh, yeah. There's a test. And uh, and I hope that the, the um, that I will, that will continue for all your sakes. Um my question is my my question is where does the cotton go and where does your um black eyed peas and your oats go and how how so that's the first question the second question is if you start diversifying even more and working in other crops in rotation where is that stuff going to go cotton unfortunately a lot of it goes overseas to china uh and other countries because most of our manufacturing is now in Asia. Uh, we've got some in Mexico, but almost all the anything to make clothes, uh, whether it's jeans or or shirts, most of that manufacturing is overseas now. And so, a lot of the cotton, and when it gets bought, it goes there. To, Even the organic the, cotton. Now, the there's unfortunately the organic cotton in the states. There's just a little over one percent of the entire cotton produced in America is organic. And a lot of that does stay here in the U.S. But uh, it's such a small market. You're talking about 14,000 acres of organic cotton when there's 12 million acres, you know, on an average year. So it's pretty, it's really a huge gap that we need to start filling. And uh, peas and the other grain crops, crops, they'll stay right here in Texas for the most part, and particularly the grain crops, they'll go to granaries uh, within 100 miles of us. And then they, they'll bag it up usually. It's used, most of it's used for livestock feed for the most part. Now the ethanol industry kind of jumped in. There's a few ethanol plants in West Texas and eastern New Mexico, um, but that industry's kind of taken a big hit too in the last few years. So you're saying people are buying... They're buying oats and peas for cattle feed because the ethanol is buying all the corn? Well, more the black-eyed peas, most of it will go for human food. But the uh, the grain crops, like maize, the majority of it goes to... Uh, and corn, corn, you know, a lot of it's human food as well, but more so now the milo is going into biofuels and livestock feed. Gotcha. And just for, um, it's really nice to have that comparison of the conventional and organic acreage. Can you talk about the 
conventional and organic price point for you guys sell them in one-ton bales, or how big is it? Yeah, the bales for bale cotton weigh right at 500 pounds on the average, a little less for the most part. In years past, organic cotton had been bringing double to what conventional cotton was bringing, but the markets went completely off the charts this year, and they, they closed the gap big time. Uh, you know, so now the uh, conventional cotton was getting within 20 cents of per pound what the organic cotton was bringing. Now, is that because everybody in the world is now all of a sudden wanting to buy more T-shirts? That's a what good question. What would make the price go like that? A lot of it's Wall Street, you know, hedging markets. Um, but a lot of it this, this past year also had to do with weather across the globe. You know, Russia announced back early in the summer that they were going to not export any wheat uh, to any other countries. And when it seemed like when that news hit the stands, it just you started seeing commodities going higher and higher each day. But then you had other huge floods in the cotton industry, such as in Pakistan and Australia, which are huge cotton producers. And, you know, Mother Nature's getting seems to be getting more neurotic each year. We'll have excessive floods in one area and extreme drought in another. So it's not getting easier to produce crops, no matter how big you are, because uh, Mother Nature is, is really the hammer that drives the nail home. Yeah, well, it doesn't help when there's people in Washington, in New York City in Stock Exchange, fancy office swivel chair type people, thinking, hmm, how can we profit off of this tragedy that's happening here and there and everywhere. That makes me very, very uncomfortable to hear about that, and I've been reading more and more articles about what percentage of this volatility and, and this increase in food prices around the world um, is caused by these guys in suits. And, the, of course, the result of that kind of volatility can be seen in developing countries, especially where people are really depending on those food prices to to stay low because we've been dumping so long. Anyway, that's a whole other narrative, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, well, we're seeing it. Everything's doubled in prices. You know, everyone, <clears throat> unfortunately, needs to prepare for that because food prices are going to go up tremendously as a result, and and so will clothing as well. And so where you're, from where you're standing, it seems like people are hunger down or they're interested to look what you're doing or they're feeling like when the price of cotton goes up that that means their fertilizer costs are going up too? I mean, is anybody yeah, looking at your everything else saying, is going oh, up too like because we're looking at... a lot at... of money on fertilizer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of that's tied to a barrel of oil. And as oil, uh, you know, it's up over $100 a barrel now. All of our input prices will, will go along with that. So, I mean, what what we're experiencing now, in my opinion, is a time to get real. You know, we've seen a lot of things, whether it was with Wall Street or with the political system, a lot of this where we focused our, our assets or our investments in things that aren't tangible, that aren't real. To me, it's an opportunity for everyone to start investing in themselves, their family, you know, and, and learning not just where your food comes from and what's happening with it, but also learning how to to grow your own food and get involved with local food production, whether it's farmer's markets or CSAs or whatever's happening in your community. And if it's not happening, make it happen. 
Yeah. Well, and and what I'm always so surprised in is how many how many ambitious people are kind of getting exactly tuned into that same song. It's almost like we're, you know, um, how when bees see the new place for their hive to be located, then they come home and do a really compelling dance, and then everybody starts dancing the same dance, and then they all go over there. I kind of feel like the leadership and the just really amazing humanity of um, and just purposefulness of a lot of the young farmers is is just like that. It's like, you know, this is what we got to do, and I'm doing it, and I'm not only doing it, but I'm doing it in a really cool way. It's very compelling. And uh, I, I kind of think that that's passing, passing from one bee to the next. So it's really wonderful to hear from you out there um, that you're feeling the same feeling. Are, are there others um, in your local community who are uh, tuning into the same frequency, or what's the what's the um, what's the local economy situation? Oh, you know, West Texas is as long as the oil business is doing well. It seems to me that the local economies around here are doing well. You know, it's in that business, it's boom or bust. You know, you had the when 2007 when it was going high, everyone was doing great, and then boom, they started cutting people right and left when when oil started going back down. So our economy here is very much tied into the oil industry, but with agriculture, so many families uh, banking on that, I mean, because that's our way of living, not just economically, but that's just our way of life. You know, we're seeing fewer and fewer farmers here and not as many, not as many young people returning as we need. The average age of the American farmer is 62, 63 years of age. So we can't have it's a generation of farmers. Um, and what's your, be, what's your perspective and what's your advice, or what do you say to that problem? How, how do you talk about motivating more farm kids and non-farm background kids to get involved? Because it goes back to just reconnecting with nature for me, you know, where we'll grow up and it's all about sports or it's all about you know, the fun stuff or, or getting a job that involves a computer and an office and all this. But to me, it's it's about reconnecting to nature. I think we've seen over the last 50-plus years a slow, gradual movement away from nature, away from realness. And to me, you know, nature and the human spirit is a mirror. You know, if we break that connection, we lose a huge part of ourselves. Um, I like to to tell younger people, especially in kids, you know, just getting grounded, I mean, literally, you know, instead of going to a psychiatrist and getting antidepressants, why don't we spend more time in nature, you know, whether it's planting a garden or taking longer walks, you know, out by ourselves and, you know, just go to your favorite tree, start with that. And I think we'll be amazed at at the doors that open internally and externally for us because there is such that I mean, that connection that's there, it's just a matter of whether or not we open ourselves up to it. I think it, I think it's true what you say. I'm just looking out my own window now, and, and I've been watching the squirrels get busy. It's spring here, and uh, I know where all their nests are that I can see from here. And it's nice. I, just, I can just check in on them, and it's like a, it's like a um, kind of a home place for your eyes and for your thoughts. It's cool how that happens when you are in the same place over and over. 
Well, yeah, now, I mean, hold on. We can't get so philosophical and not get to the main business, which is you just wrote a book. Oh, yeah. And... Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about your book, please, and where can we buy it? Uh, the book is Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth. Um, the subtitle is A Path to Agriculture's Higher Consciousness. It is available pretty much anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Borders, uh, your local mom-and-pops bookstores. You know, we need to support them. You can get it through them. Um, it's been out now since October, and really just really grassroots movement, you know, trying to spread the word and and talking about what not only our battles and, and challenges are in agriculture commercially, but it's a resource book for everyone to understand what's happening and what needs to be done uh, moving forward. And at the end of each chapter, there's references, resources, books, websites, documentaries, tons of information for everyone to get you started going in a direction that will help you live more independently and self-sufficient. Well, and that's the thing that's always, you know, it's such a, it's such a relief to spend one's days working on you know, the home home ground and big issues and really important stuff. And then when you look out and you think, gosh, you know, man, we need a lot more people working like this. We need a lot bigger of a team. How many people do you think we need more in agriculture? How many more farmers? Well, right now, I mean, the farmers, the USDA's numbers is we're less than 1% of the population. Uh, it would be nice to get that to 20 to 25%, and that may seem crazy, but it can be done. And, and I don't expect it to be 20 to 25% of people who are farming a 1,000 acres, you know, whether you're farm, you live on one acre or five acres or just have a front yard and a backyard. You know, during World War II, they had victory gardens where everyone started growing food, so there wasn't a shortage, you know, and help with the soldiers and all that. To me, we need to have the same model going right now. We know there need to be more gardens in front and backyards instead of lavish, you know, patios with huge water fountains and stuff that doesn't feed us or or give us clean drinking water. We need to be focusing on the basics of life, and that's food, water, and shelter, and love, you know. I hear you. So now let's just do the math. If that If we need... We need 20 to 25 percent of Americans doing that. We have we have 600 million Americans. Uh, I think it's a little over 300 million. Oh, sorry, we have 300 million Americans. So that means about 30 or maybe even 60 million farmers. Yeah, Richard Heinberg wrote a piece. Um, he wrote the forward for my book uh, called uh, "50 Million Farmers," and to me, that you know. That's not far off from the number we need to strive for. And so to do that, we need to be educating people. people now, uh, it's going to take everyone who's listening to this radio for sure, and probably everyone you know also. So um, I would say take a, take a note from, from Eric and start getting a little bit evangelical about this because if we're going to succeed in, and have a system that will feed us all, it, it does seem like the... Um, the scope and scale of the of reimagination of our agricultural system is we need to recruit. 
Yeah, and that's what I want to stress because the agriculture system is it's broken. It's in its final days. You know, whether that's five years or ten years, I don't try to predict when this will will all come down. But there's not enough farmers, younger farmers, to pick up the slack when the baby boomers retire. And there's, I mean, you're talking about the numbers will be decimated by more than half as far as big farmers. So where are we going to pick up the slack? Where are we going to step up? Who's going to step up to the plate? You know, to me, it's up to us as younger generations to really put this on our backs and start walking up the hill. You know, it's not going to be solved by government. It's not going to be solved by corporations. This is going to be solved by all of us. So if you want to find out more about this book and you want to read, he has a wonderful website on dreamriverpress.com, and you can go clicking around on there and reading some of the essays in the book and find the book. Tune into this way of thinking and get some perspective from West Texas. Um, it's pretty It's pretty great that you're out there and you can see the oil um, and the land at the same time. That's not everybody who has that perspective. Yeah, you can also visit my website at sonofafarmer.com or I'm on Facebook at Son of a Farmer Child of the Earth. Right on. Well, I thank you so much for coming here. And did you have any more readings that you wanted to advertise in the New York area? I'm going to be at the the Manhattan Public Library next Wednesday, and I believe it's at 6.30 p.m. But uh, I'll have all the details on my website because I'm going to be in Boston, New York, and Philly coming up this next week. So this is the time. If you're in the East Coast, uh, to tune in and turn on to this whole story, and, and please do spread the word if you know any journalists. It would be really wonderful to keep uh, amplifying this story as, mu- as much as possible. Thank you to all the listeners, and thank you to Heritage Radio. This has been yet another session, and I hope you'll tune in again next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>